Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Brown here. Glad you could join us today. So this show was recorded before we got any articles regarding the sudden passing of Diane Feinstein. We will bring that article to you as soon as it is available to us. So we also remind you, you're listening to a recording provided by the use of those who are blinded, printed, paired. Materials or items read in Ayers, LA, are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. So we've got one Israel story to start us off here from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times from Monday, September 25th, 2023. Israeli raid kills two Palestinians in the West Bank from the Associated Press. Noir Shams Refugee Camp, West Bank. Two Palestinians were killed during an Israeli military raid Sunday in the Northern West Bank. Palestinian health officials said the latest bloodshed in a surge of violence during a sensitive Jewish holiday period. The Israeli military said it moved into the Nor Shams refugee camp near the town of Tulkarem to destroy what it described as a militant command center and bomb storage facility in a building. It said that engineering units detonated a number of bombs planted under roads and that militants opened fire and hurled explosives as troops responded with live fire. The Palestinian Health Ministry said two people, Asid Abdul Ali, 21, and Abdulorahman Abdul Dagash, 32, were killed by Israeli fire. The raid caused heavy, uh, heavy damage to the camp's main road, severing water pipes and flooding parts of the street. The ground floor of the targeted building was heavily damaged, while parts of the exterior wall of the second floor collapsed. The Hamas militant group claimed Abu Ali as a member. Elsewhere in the West Bank, Berzit University, a major Palestinian institution, said the Israeli army carried out a rare raid on its campus near the city of Ramallah and arrested nine students, including the head of the student council. It said the students were all supporters of the Hamas militant group. The university denounced the raid, which said caused damage to university property. The Israeli military alleged the suspects were plotting an attack on Israeli targets. Israel has been carrying up, carrying out stepped-up military raids primarily in the northern West Bank for the last year and a half, what it says is a campaign to root out Palestinian militants and thwart attacks. Palestinians say the raids entrench Israel's 56-year occupation over the West Bank. The raids have shown little sign of slowing the fighting and contributed to the weakening of the Palestinian Authority, the self-rule government that and minister, ministers part of the parts of the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Some 190 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank since the start of the year, according to a tally by the Associated Press. Israel says most of those killed have been militants, but youths protesting the incursions and others not involved in the confrontations have also been killed. At least 31 people have been, ki- been killed in Palestinian attacks against Israelis this year. The tensions have begun to spread over the last week to the Gaza Strip, where hundreds of Palestinians have been holding daily demonstrations along the fence separating the territory from Israel. Israeli airstrikes hit militant sites in Gaza on Sunday for the third straight day, Israeli military said, after Palestinian militants near the border fence launched incendiary balloons into Israel and threw an explosive at soldiers. The Israeli army said the balloons set two fires in Israel. There were no reported casualties from the strikes. 
Earlier on Sunday, the Israeli military shot and wounded five Palestinians who were rallying at the separation fence along the Israeli frontier with the crowded enclave. It's a familiar tactic for Palestinians in Gaza protesting a 16-year blockade imposed by Israel with Egypt's help. Israel says the blockade is needed to prevent the ruling Hamas militant group from arming itself. The Israeli army said Sunday that it had targeted two posts belonging to Hamas, the militant group that rules Gaza, just east of the Boray refugee camp and Jabalia. The surge in violence comes during the Jewish New Year holiday season. Jews are marking Yom Kippur, the holy day of, on their calendar, followed later by the week-long Sukkot festival. There was an Israeli raid kills two Palestinians in the West Bank from the Associated Press. Out of the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, September 25th, 2023. Now a couple of stories from Canada. This uh, first one is from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, September 26, 2023. Fuhrer over Canada tribute to Nazi ally. Palestinian speaker, Parliament Speaker, issues apology for honoring a man who was in Waffen SS unit from the Associated Press. Toronto. The Speaker of Canada's House of Commons apologized Sunday for recognizing a man who fought for a Nazi military unit during World War II. Just after Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky delivered an address in the House of Commons on Friday, Canadian lawmakers gave 98-year-old Yaroslav Hunka a standing ovation when Speaker Anthony Rota drew attention to him. Rota introduced Hunka as a war hero who fought for the 1st Ukrainian Division. The division, also known as the Waffen-SS Galicia Division, or the SS 14th Waffen Division was a voluntary Ukrainian unit that was under the command of the Nazis. In my remarks following the address of the President of Ukraine, I recognized an individual in the gallery. I have subsequently become aware of more information, which causes me to regret my decision to do so, Rota said in a statement. He added that his fellow parliament members and the visiting Ukrainian delegation were not aware of his plan to recognize Hunka. Rota noted that Hunka was from his district. I particularly want to express my want to extend my deepest apologies to Jewish communities in Canada and around the world. I accept full responsibility for my actions, Rota said. Hunka could not be immediately reached for comment. Canadian lawmakers cheered, and the Ukrainian president raised his fist in acknowledgement as Hunka saluted from the gallery during two separate standing ovations. Rota called him a Ukrainian hero and a Canadian hero, and we thank him for all his service. Zelensky was in Ottawa to bolster support from Western allies for Ukraine's war against the Russian invasion. Russian President Vladimir Putin has painted his enemies in Ukraine as neo-Nazis, even though Zelensky is Jewish and lost relatives in the Holocaust. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's office said in a statement that Rota had apologized and accepted full responsibility for issuing the inv invitation to Hanka and for the recognition in Parliament. This was the right thing to do, the statement said of Rota's apology. No advance notice was provided to the Prime Minister's office nor the Ukrainian delegation about the invitation or the recognition. The Friends of Simon Weisenthal Center for Holocaust Studies issued a statement Sunday saying that a vision was responsible for the mass murder of innocent civilians with a level of brutality and malice that is unimaginable. 
An apology is owed to every Holocaust survivor and veteran of the Second World War who fought the Nazis, and an expansion must be provi- explanation must be provided as to how this individual entered the hallowed halls, hallowed halls of Canada Canadian Parliament and received recognition from the Speaker of the House and a standing ovation, the statement said. Michael Mostyn, B'nai B'rith Canada's chief executive, said it was outrageous that Parliament honored a former member of a Nazi unit, saying Ukrainian ultranationalist ideologues who volunteered for the Galicia Division dreamed of an ethnically homogenized Ukrainian state and endorsed the idea of ethnic cleansing. We understand that an apology is forthcoming. We expect a meaningful apology. Parliament owes an apology to all Canadians for this outrage and a detailed explanation as to how this could possibly have taken place at the center of Canadian democracy, Mostyn said before Rota issued a statement. Members of the Parliament from all parties rose to applaud Hanka. A spokesman for the Conservative Party said the party was not aware of his history at the time. We find the, the reports of this individual's history very troubling, Sebastian Skamsky said. He added that Trudeau's Liberal Party would have to explain why Hunka was invited. There was furor over a Canada tribute to Nazi ally from the Associated Press out of the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, September 26, 2023. Here's a follow-up article from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, September 27, 2023. Canada's House Speaker resigns over Nazi invite from the Associated Press. Toronto. The Speaker of Canada's House of Commons resigned Tuesday for inviting a man who had fought for a Nazi military unit during World War II to Parliament to attend a speech by the Ukrainian President. Just after Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky delivered an address in the House of Commons on Friday, the Canadian lawmaker gave 98-year-old Yaroslav Hunka a standing ovation when Speaker Anthony Rota drew attention to him. Rota introduced Hunka as a war hero who fought for the 1st Ukrainian Division. Observers over the weekend began to publicize the fact that the 1st Ukrainian Division was also known as the Waffen-SS Galicia Division or the SS 14th Waffen Division, a voluntary unit that was under the command of the Nazis. No one in this house is above any of us. Therefore, I must step down as a speaker, Rota said in Parliament. I reiterate my profound regret for my error in recognizing an individual in the House during the joint address to Parliament of President Zelensky. That public recognition has caused pain to individuals and communities, including to the Jewish communities in Canada and around the world, in addition to Nazi survivors in Poland, among other nations. I accept full responsibility for my actions, he said. Rota stepped down after meeting with the House of Commons party leaders uh, later Tuesday. All main opposition parties called for him to step down, and House leader Karina Gould said that lawmakers had lost confidence in Rota. This is something that has brought shame and embarrassment to all of Parliament, and indeed all Canadians. The Speaker did the honorable thing in resigning, Gould of the Liberal Party said. Gould said she is of Jewish origin and a descendant of Holocaust survivors, of a Holocaust survivor. This incident hurt me personally, as it hurt all members of this house and all Canadians, she said. Gould earlier said Rota invited and recognized Hunka without informing the government or the delegation from Ukraine. Canadian Health Minister Mark Holland had called the incident incredibly embarrassing. 
The Friends of the Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies said in a statement that the incident has left a stain on our country's venerable legis uh, legislature with profound implications both in Canada and globally. This incident has comp uh, compromised all 330 members of parliament and has also handed a propaganda victory to Russia, distracted from what was a momentously significant display of unity between Canada and Ukraine. It has also caused great pain to Canada's Jewish community, Holocaust survivors, veterans, and other victims of the Nazi regime. In an apology Sunday, the speaker said he alone was responsible for inviting and recognizing Hunka, who was from the district that Rota represents. The speaker's office said Monday that it was Rota's son who contacted Hunka's local office to see whether it was possible for him to attend Zelensky's speech. Members of parliament from all parties rose to applause Hunka, unaware of the details of who he was. The prime minister's office said it was unaware that Hunka was invited until after the address. The speaker's office also confirmed it did not share its invite list with any other party or group. The vetting process for visitors to the gallery is for physical security threats, not reputational threats, the speaker's office said. In Moscow, a Kremlin spokesman said it was outrageous that Hunka received a standing ovation. Russian President Vladimir Putin has painted his enemies in Ukraine as neo-Nazis, although Zelensky is Jewish and lost relatives in the Holocaust. It's highly unfortunate, and the only winner here is the Putin regime, which is already spitting what happened on Friday to justify its ongoing military actions in Ukraine, said Daniel Bellin, a political science professor at McGill University in Montreal. The opposition conservatives in Canada have blamed Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, but Bellin noted that the Speaker's role in Canada is as, is as an, an officer of Parliament who does not participate in partisan caucus meetings and is not a member of the Cabinet. That was Canada's House Speaker resigns over Nazi invite from the Associated Press. Out of the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, September 27, 2023. And in other international news, this is from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, September 29, 2023. NATO Secretary General meets with Zelensky. Ukrainian President provides update on status of war against Russia and needs of troops on battlefield from the Associated Press. Kiev, Ukraine. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg met with President, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky to discuss the status of the war and needs of troops on Thursday, the day after Russia accused Ukraine's Western allies of helping plan and conduct last week's missile strike on the Black Sea Fleet's headquarters on the annexed Crimean Peninsula. Zelensky said Stoltenberg agreed to make efforts to get NATO members to help provide additional air defense systems to protect Ukraine's power plants and energy infrastructure that were badly damaged in relentless and deadly attacks by Russia last winter. He also reminded the Secretary General of the persistent attacks that often strike civilian areas, including 40 drone attacks overnight. In the face of such intense attacks against Ukrainians, against our cities, our ports, which are crucial for global food security, we need a corresponding intensity of, of pressure on Russia and a strengthening of our air defense, Zelensky said. The world must see how Russia is losing dearly so that our shared values ultimately prevail. Stoltenberg said that NATO has contracts for 2.5 
billion dollars in ammunition for Ukraine, including 155mm howitzer shells, anti-tank guide, guided missiles, and tank ammunition. The stronger Ukraine becomes, the closer we become to ending Russia's aggressive aggression, Stoltenberg said. Russia could lay down arms and end its war today. Ukraine doesn't have that option. Ukraine's surrender would not mean peace. It would mean brutal Russian occupation. Peace at any price would be no peace at all. On Wednesday, Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova had said the, the attack on the Black Sea Fleet headquarters in Crimea had been coordinated with the help of U.S. and U.K. security agencies and that NATO satellites and recognizance planes also played a role. Ukraine said, without providing supporting evidence, that the attack had killed 34 officers and wounded 105 others. But it also claimed to have killed the fleet's commander, Admiral Viktor Sokolov, who was shown on Russian state television on Wednesday speaking with reporters in the Black Sea city of Sevastopol. Unconfirmed news reports said storm shadow missiles provided to Ukraine by the UK and France were used in the attack on the Russian Navy installation. The UK Ministry of Defense, which in the past has declined to discuss intelligence-related matters, didn't comment on Zakharova's remarks. The meeting with Stoltenberg came the same day that French Defense Minister Sebastien Lecarnu visited the memorial wall that honors fallen soldiers in Kiev the day and the day after UK Defense Secretary Grant Schatz met with Zelensky to reaffirm the UK's support for Ukraine and pledged to provide more ammunition as Kiev's counter-offensive plods forward toward the season when a damp and cold weather could slow progress. Shaps, who hosted a Ukrainian family in his home for a year, said that he was personally aggrieved by what the country had endured. Our support for you, for Ukraine, remains absolutely undented, Shaps said in a video posted by Zelensky. We stand shoulder to shoulder with you. We feel your pain of what's happened, and we want to see a resolution, which is the resolution that you want and require. Zelensky has pushed for Ukraine to join NATO, but at the organization's annual summit over the summer in, in Lithuania, members of the Transatlantic Military Alliance pledged more support for Ukraine, but stopped short of extending an invitation for the country to join the alliance. NATO leaders said during the summit that they would allow Ukraine to join the alliance when allies agree and conditions are met. They also decided to remove obstacles on Ukraine's membership path so that it can join more quickly once the war with Russia is over. Zelensky said Thursday that Ukraine is working on a plan that will outline practical steps for Ukraine to align with principles, principles and standards of NATO. And it is very important that the Allies have agreed that Ukraine does not need an action plan for NATO membership, Zelensky said. That was NATO Secretary General meets with Zelensky from the Associated Press out of the World section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, September 29, 2023. All right, and now we move on to an opinion article from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times for Monday, September 25th, 2023. Adidas didn't ditch yay even after anti-Semitism by L.Z. Granderson. Anything was possible. Adidas executives knew that back in 2013 when they signed the artist formerly known as Kanye West away from Nike, companies shouldn't get away with feigning shock after a provocative artist does something provocative. By 2013, as he is called now, 
had already, yay, as he is called now, uh, had already said President George W. Bush didn't care about black people. He had rushed a stage to insult Taylor Swift. Controversy was part of his brand. Eccentric behavior, a provocative genius, ultimately a risk that the apparel company surmised was worth taking. Then came his notorious meltdown. When he posted anti-Semitic messages on Twitter and Instagram a year ago, Adidas, his partner on the Yeezy line of sneakers, had a PR nightmare on its hands and said last October that it had cut ties with him. But the company didn't uh, decide to sell those shoes, but the company did decide to sell the shoes that it had already made, donating some of the profits to organizations fighting anti-Semitism. And then recently, Adidas chief executive Bjorn Gilden casually played down the anti-Semitic tirade. I think Kanye West is one of the most creative people in the world, Gilden said on a podcast about investing. Very unfortunate, because I don't think he meant what he said, and I don't think he's a bad person. It just came off that way. One of Yee's tweets was a threat to go DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. Hard to see the misunderstanding. So why is Adidas using a uh, compliment sandwich to describe the controversy? Apparently some faction still views Ye as a risk worth taking. The apparel company did just spend the summer raking in close to half a billion dollars selling shoes and other Yeezy items that I didn't think uh, anyone would want anymore. After Adidas said it was cutting ties with Ye, it was staring down the possibility of losing nearly $1.3 billion dollars. But the plan to donate a portion of Yeezy's shoe sales to charity rather than destroying them was successful. Adidas released a limited supply and made $437 million in the process. The company wants to maintain the distance it has created from Ye while still cashing in on his fame. So after Gildan's I don't think he meant what he said remark came a statement from the company. Our decision to end part to end our partnership with Ye because of his unacceptable comments and behavior was absolutely the right one, the company said. Our stance has not changed. Hate of any kind has no place in sports or society, and we remain committed to fighting it. While selling Yeezys and defending, yay, anything is possible, I guess. It's just hard to believe that uh, the company that watched the artist make multiple hateful statements over the course of a decade in business together is really committed to fighting it. Feels more like damage control now that they're now that it's their brand in danger of being damaged. In recent months, it announced a $1.1 billion partnership with Manchester United, greenlighted a second wave of Yeezy sales, and saw its stock price recovering. The last thing Adidas needs is for the cavalier attitude of its chief executive to reignite the controversy. Adidas was getting what it wanted. It could sell Yeezys and also put out news releases saying it had cut ties with Ye. It's a similar situation to what Pepsi did to Madonna 35 years ago. The beverage company partnered with the controversial singer ahead of the release of her Like a Prayer album in 1989. By then, she had already angered the Vatican with Papa Don't Preach and Like a Virgin. By casting Leon Robinson, who was black, to play a saint-like figure in a music video, and then making out with that figure in church while also dancing in front of burning crosses was too far. Pepsi canceled airing the commercial, horrified that the provocative artists they signed to promote their soft drink had, you know, provoked people. Last week, more than three decades late, the beverage company finally shared the commercial on social media. 
Thank you for finally realizing the genius of our collaboration, Madonna posted on Instagram afterwards. Artists are here to disturb the peace. Sounds good in theory. Sounds great in the marketing department. But when business leaders are reminding what sort of public figures they've, been, they've made a deal with, commercials get canceled and shoes are taken off the shelf. The companies pretend that they were blindsided. They say that they had that they say that they knew they know these artists would do something offensive. They would have looked elsewhere. They also try to keep cashing in on the connection whenever it's convenient. When you team with someone as provocative as Ye, you know from the outset anything is possible. That was Adidas didn't ditch Ye even after anti-Semitism by Elsie Granderson from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, September 25th, 2023. All right, and now here's something from the Los Angeles Times, Friday, September 29th, 2023. Saving Sukkot with an ancient fruit. This year's crop tested owner of California Citron Farm as never before by Daniel Miller, reported from Exeter, California. The citron is an unusual fruit. It's an ancient citrus varietal, one that's lumpy, wrinkly, and somewhat oblong. You won't find it in most grocery stores. It's not a LaCroix flavor. It isn't showing up in, on many cooking shows, but it is special. For thousands of years, the citron has been not part of the Jewish holiday of Sukkot, a vital element of the tradition. The fruit is held while uh, reciting a, a daily blessing during the week-long harvest celebration, which this year begins Friday at sundown. For the last 40 years or so, many Jews in America have been celebrating with citrons grown by a single large U.S. supplier, Linco Ranch. To cultivate this esoteric fruit, the San Joaquin Valley Farm com complies with various Jewish agricultural laws and gets every relevant approach from a kosher, kosher supervision service. Greg Kirkpatrick, who operates the Exeter California Farm, is not Jewish, he's Presbyterian and he hasn't been to church lately. This year, though, he's been testing, he's been tested like a figure from the Bible. New te Old Testament, New Testament, take your pick. On a recent weekday afternoon, Kirkpatrick eyed a row of spindly citron trees whose branches were supported by a network of tree trellises and twine. He fingered a waxy shoot. F uh, Kirkpatrick 62 wasn't pleased. Far from it. As head of his family's specialty citrus farm, Kirkpatrick has dutifully tended the, to this crop. Despite those efforts, the trees, thrown out of whack by the epic rainstorms that throttled this part of California starting in January, were not cooperating. By March, they should have been covered in flower buds. There were none. That's when I started to worry, he said. After two more agonizing months, the still dormant trees forced Kirkpatrick to consider a dark and incredibly likely possibility. A year with no harvest. The prospect filled him with existential dread. I had a full identity crisis over that, he said. Finally, in charge after 20 years on the farm, Kirkpatrick could now understand what his late father must have felt when he weathered the tough times that any family operation faces. The sense of responsibility, the anxiety, the angst. Kirkpatrick just needed the trees to do their part. Would they? Among Jews, a citron is known as an etrog, E-T-R-O-G, the fruit's Hebrew name. Ahead of Sukkot, they can cost more than $100 a piece, 
owing in part to their rarity and the stringent rules that govern their cultivation and use. Sample dictate. To be deemed kosher for sukkah, an etrog must be free of any major blemishes. No insect nibbles allowed. In a typical year, Lynn Cove Ranch's business partner, the Lakewood, New Jersey-based etrog distributor Jakob Rothberg, would visit the farm over the summer to inspect the citrons. Using a scale that tops out at 7.7, a quirk benefiting the Byzantine etrog ecosystem, Rothberg and a few colleagues grade the fruit, taking into account each citron's size, color, and overall aesthetics. Generally, the bumpier, the better. Since the calamity, Kirkpatrick had summoned Rothberg to the farm in May. They walked the rows of barren citron trees. Rothberg remembers what he was thinking on that day. We're done. I've been doing this for decades, he said, and I've never seen anything like it. Citrons are Lynn Cove Ranch's biggest income-producing crop, accounting for about a third of its annual revenue. With 14 employees working on only 35 acres among the smaller self-sustaining commercial farms in the Valley Citrus Belt, the facility heavily depends on the etrog business. In turn, a vast web of retailers and wholesale buyers were counting on an allotment of Linco Ranch Citrons. And there was another stressor. Kirkpatrick was grieving. In late February, amid the cascade of rainstorms, the farmer's father, John Kirkpatrick, died at the age of 92. He'd started Lincove Ranch with his wife, Shirley, more than 50 years ago. He's the one who plunged the farm into the etrog business decades ago. Straight up mensch is how Rothberg described this lifelong Presbyterian of Scottish descent. Kirkpatrick said that at the time of his father's death, the biblical deluge was seen as a blessing, not a harbinger of crisis. We didn't really even know at that point what the impact was going to be, he said. It was great. We were getting rain. So how does a family of Presbyterians from the Central Valley wind up growing a niche citrus fruit that has been part of the Jewish tradition going back millennia? Big Ag. John Kirkpatrick, who established Lindgrove Remt in the mid-1960s, had for years been a grower of lemons, oranges, and other fruit. But the increasing industrialization and consolidation of citrus farming made it harder to compete with larger enterprises, Kirkpatrick said. It was an out-of-the-blue telephone call from a part-time etrog importer named Yisrael Weisberger in 1980 that would change the course of John Kirkpatrick's life and give his farm a new vitality. Weisberger asked Kirkpatrick if he could help him find a grower to cultivate citron trees. And I said, I think you're talking to him, Kirkpatrick told California Bountiful, which is published by the California Farm Bureau Federation in 2018. I saw it as a challenge. Farming citrons did turn out to be quite challenging, said Shirley Kirkpatrick, 88. For starters, she said, we just thought they would probably grow like lemons. They were wrong. But over time, the Kirkpatricks learned to tend to the trees, whose branches must be secured to trellises, lest the heavy, heavy fruit pull them to the ground. When Rothberg, who was Weisberger's brother-in-law, took over as Lynn Cove Ranch's distributor in the mid-90s, he brought consultants from Israel to help improve the operation, which now grows five citron varieties. Still, there were tough times. Shirley Kirkpatrick uh, said, including a 1990 freeze that wiped out the whole crop. 
A couple of times, John would say, I think we are going to quit, she said, and Yaakov would say, you can't. But the difficulties they faced, contending with uncooperative weather, decoding obtuse Jewish agricultural law, and ensured that we were the only ones who could do it in the U.S., said Shirley Kirkpatrick. There were a few wannabes along the line, but they didn't make it. There are some small citron farms scattered across the country. They typically grow the fruit for its use in candy, marmalade, and liquor. Lindcove Ranch sells citrons with cosmetic defects to makers of these products. Eventually, around 2000, John and Shirley Kirkpatrick made plans to bring their son into the business. Greg Kirkpatrick was then working for American Farmland Trust, an agricultural organization dedicated to conservation. The job was fulfilling. In 2002, we helped establish a four-mile-long farmland security perimeter in Madeira, California, protecting the area from development in a clash that was covered by the Times. But in 2003, his father called the family together. Kirkpatrick has two siblings for a momentous meeting. It was then Greg Kirkpatrick said that he was tapped to one day take over Lind Cove Ranch. The process wasn't complete until John Kirkpatrick's passing. It hasn't always been easy working for his father, Greg Kirkpatrick said. At times, the patriarch wasn't inclined to relinquish control. At the end of his life, though, he told his son what he needed to hear. He said, it is all yours. You're ready to do it. Take the reins, recalled Kirkpatrick, growing emotional. That was very important to me. Kirkpatrick has, over the years, learned a good deal about Judaism, especially Sukkot. Jews mark the holiday by building temporary huts where they eat their meals and sometimes even sleep throughout the celebration. The dwelling known as a sukkah is meant to call to mind the, imper the imper impermanent shelters of the Israel Israelites as they wandered in the desert for 40 years because what would a Jewish holiday be without a little it and no, anyway? Still, sukkah is a joyous occasion one that is centered on four plant species, the myrtle, willow, citron, and date palm, whose frond is known as the lulav. Each represents a different part of the body. And the etrog is the heart, said Rabbi Asher Brander of Link Kolel, an Orthodox congregation based in Los Angeles' Pico-Robertson area. The four species, he said, represent the totality of a human being who is coming and expressing gratitude to God. Joel Rimbaum, Rabbi Emeritus of Temple Beth Am, a conservative synagogue on La Cienega Boulevard, said that Jews seek out aesthetically pleasing etrogen, that's plural for etrog, as way, a way to beautify a divinely ordained religious practice. It is not to outdo the person next door, he said. It is the beautification of the mitzvah, a recognition of the beauty that God provides. As part of Sukkot, the four species are held while saying a daily blessing, except on Shabbat. That is an expression of the holiness of the holiday. During the ritual, the four items are shaken in six directions, north, south, east, west, up, and down. Rabbi Susan Goldberg of Nefesh, a transdenominational congregation that offers Shabbat services in Echo Park, said that when you are holding the lulav and etrog, you remember we are an ancient people very much connected to the earth. Kirkpatrick knows at least some, if not all, of this. He's held the four species in his hands. He said the Hebrew bless he said the Hebrew blessing. As he learned about Judaism, 
Kirkpatrick picked up the lingo and a very particular way of saying it. Some Orthodox Jews of Ashkenazi descent speak a version of Hebrew influenced by Yiddish that renders a T sound as an S. When, for example, Kirkpatrick talks about an etrog, he calls it an S-rog. Hearing a scruffy farmer of Scottish stock speak Hebrew words like a black hat wearing rabbi from the old country illustrates the cultural exchange taking place at Lincove Ranch. Though not a Jew, Kirkpatrick said that he feels a strong spiritual connection to Judaism. How could you not when you have thousands of Jews praying for you on Tu Beshevat, said Kirkpatrick, referencing the Jewish holiday that celebrates trees. They're praying for a beautiful esrog for you. You feel that. He needs those prayers this spring. One day in late May, Kirkpatrick went to inspect one of his citron orchards. The farmer who moves among the trees and tangled weeds with a sure-footedness that approaches grace spotted something unexpected. Flower buds. There was elation, then a realization. It wouldn't be a full bloom, Kirkpatrick said. Some trees that had produced hundreds of citrons a year earlier didn't make any fruit at all. Complete blanks, he called them. But it was enough to warrant a harvest. We can't just let, let it go by the wayside, Kirkpatrick said. The harvest began in August, about a month behind schedule. The crop was too small and too late to justify a trip from Rothberg and his colleagues to inspect the citrons at the farm and assign them grades. That work, which can enhance the value of the most aesthetically pleasing fruit, would instead be done in New Jersey. By this time, Kirkpatrick and Rothberg had already decided to purchase citrons from a farm in Israel where most of the world's major etrog growers are located to ensure they'd have enough to honor commitments to their customers. That foreign fruit would supplement the citrons from Lindcove Ranch. It was a tough monetary decision, but it had allowed them to hedge, the hedge in case the harvest didn't work out as expected. Kirkpatrick knew in mid-September that he would be able to hit the production number he'd forecast for Rothberg. The harvest amounted to about 30% of last year's haul, he said. The business operates on a consignment model, with Lynn Cove Ranch getting a cut of each etrog Rothberg sells. We will pay back all of our expenses and have a little bit left over, Kirkpatrick said. There was at least one un uh, uh, unalloyed positive. The fruit, Kirkpatrick said, was the highest quality produced by Lynn Cove Ranch in many years. The citrons lengthened to a desired shape, and they had a waxy shine. What did he attribute the strong results to? My dad, Kirkpatrick answered. Then he said with a laugh, but it, he, said, this, he said this with a laugh, but it didn't seem like a joke. On a mid-September day that would reach 94 degrees, Rabbi Avraham Teichman, clad in slacks, a dress shirt, and tie, stood amid Linkov Ranch's citron trees and admired the fruit that he'd selected. Once back home in Lakewood, New Jersey, the rabbi would distribute the citrons to family. He hadn't chosen any of the big honkers that Kirkpatrick said could fetch a thousand dollars apiece. The etrogem were ensconced in a foam case that had been designed by Kirkpatrick to offer maximum protection to the fragile fruit. The most delicate part of an etrog is its pitome, an easily broken protrusion on one end of the fruit that is a remnant of the flower bud from which it grew. If a pitom falls off naturally, and it often does, 
the etrog is still kosher. If it is otherwise removed, forget about it. The rabbi wasn't just at the farm to shop. He was on hand to observe an important task. The transfer of citron cuttings from a small plastic sleeves to larger containers so they could continue to grow. Even as the harried harvest continued, Kirkpatrick paused that work to perform this essential undertaking, which had been engineered by Lindcove Wrench to speed up a natural process. It takes five or six years before a citron tree grown from seed produces usable fruit, but a tree that grows from a cutting taken off another will bear citrons in about three years. That's an especially convenient duration because Jewish law dictates that etrogen must come from trees that are more than three years old. Younger fruit, known as orla, may not be picked. The delicate cuttings taken in early August spent about a month in a greenhouse. They are little babies, so they need special treatment, said Teichman, 77, the rabbinic administrator of Kehila Kosher, a nonprofit that provides kosher supervision services. To comply with Orla rules, Teichman said that cuttings must never be disconnected from the ground during the, their transfer. If they were placed on, say, a linoleum floor before being replanted, the three-year waiting period before the uh, the three-year waiting period would have to be restarted. Teichman needed to confirm that the cuttings were properly transferred without losing their connection to the earth. He also had to check the would-be tree's lineage. Each had a small label that detailed its extraction to make sure they had a pure pedigree. As Teichman looked on, a few farmhands gingerly coaxed the cuttings out of the plastic sleeves, exposing young roots tangled in clods of soil. They were then placed in new, larger containers. One of the workers, Mary Castaneda, said that she'd never seen that she'd never even seen a citron before starting at Linco Ranch last year. The work is better and more interesting than harvesting grapes, she said. Along the way, she's learned a bit about Judaism. I knew nothing about it before, Castaneda said. These young cuttings, which numbered about 350, would eventually replace the farm's original section of citron trees, Kirkpatrick said. They were ones that had been planted by his father many years ago. This, said Teichman, is called an infection uh, point, an inflection point. Come summer 2026, these trees should provide Jews across the U.S. with etrogem for Sukkot. The rabbi watched the laborers for a while longer. He was satisfied with their efforts. It was time for him to go. He approached Kirkpatrick, thought of the man's father, and intoned a message. May this year be a year of comfort. The workers paused in the shade of a sturdy valley oak tree, but only for a moment. There were more, uh, there were more cuttings to transfer. On this day and the hundreds following it, Kirkpatrick and his colleagues would do all they could to secure a good harvest in three years' time. But as farmers and rabbis have known for thousands of years, some things are beyond our control. Kirkpatrick seems to have made peace with that. That was Saving Sukkot with an Ancient Fruit by Daniel Miller, Reporting from Exeter, California, out of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, September 29th, 2023. All right, and here is a little bit of entertainment news from the Los Angeles Times, California section, Monday, September 18, 2023. The Bowl salutes a true Hollywood cat. P22 is remembered by the L.A. Phil with the premiere of the fanfare by Adam Schoenberg by Mark Swed, music critic.
A new Los Angeles legend we might all be able to agree on is P-22, the mountain lion who made the area around the Hollywood sign his home and who roamed Griffith Park and the <clears throat> Hollywood Hills may have snacked on the occasional pet or resident at the nearby L.A. Zoo. But he remained beloved and a star of TV and this newspaper, which featured him on the front page 11 years ago, a few months after he was first discovered. His death in December became international news. Did P-22 manage to cross Kawanga Boulevard and the 101 freeway to cruise the Hollywood Bowl? There was a good chance he did. And what a feast he might have found Tuesday night when the L.A. Philharmonic paid the Hollywood Cat tribute at its last symphonic bowl concert of the summer. The amphitheater looked about full, which meant had P-22 been on site, he would have had the sight of a banquet beyond the imagination of even, a, even the hungriest Lion King. The pick of some 18,000 delectable human main courses, to say nothing of the picnics they may have brought. But it was just the opposite, with the premiere of Adam Schoenberg's fanfare, Cool Cat, commissioned by the orchestra. The composer, who balances a career between writing for film, TV, and the concert hall, credits the prowling puma for having saved his life. He composed Cool Cat while undergoing a health crisis of acute ultras ulcerative collision, colitis, Schoenberg noted in an interview for Occidental College where he teaches. He said that writing the score gave my body, brain, and the heart an extra boost in order, in order to keep on going while rapidly declining before emergency surgery. The very idea of Cool Cat may bring to mind another fabulous Hollywood Cool Cat, the Pink Panther. But rather than Henry Mancini's jazzily smooth saxophones, Schoenberg's cat doesn't slyly pad. His steps have percussive presence, the, the timpani, and an edgy theme to make you eagerly await this intractable Hollywood luminary to pounce. As a wistfully ebullient orchestral curtain raiser and one over in a flash, Cool Cat is well equipped to have a life of its own in various concert settings. Nor did the ball treat the premiere as a site-specific piece de occasion. Rather than take advantage of the venue's large video screens to show scenes of P-22, it zoomed in, as usual, on the orchestra, orchestra players and conductor Karen Kam Kamensek, who was making her L.A. Phil debut and did so with verve and panache. But afterward, when a shot of P-12 was finally projected, happy cheers and applause suddenly changed the sonic character to something more muted. It felt as though the crowd collectively recognized that it was his land we appropriate for our concerts and our roads, where P-22, hit by a car, received his fatal injury. One thing Schoenberg made this one way Schoenberg made this enduring cat cool was through, at times, rhythmically treading to a minimalist Philip Glass-inspired soundtrack. Kamensek is best known for a champion in Glass. She conducts on the Metropolitan Opera video Akhenaten, which won a Grammy. At the bowl, she followed Cool Cat with Glass's first violent concerto. But to say that the 1987 premiere of the concerto, Glass's first major orchestral score, got a cool reception from the audience at Carnegie Hall and a belittling from the, uh, one from the press is an understatement. It was one of the chilliest receptions of an important new work I've ever experienced. A chief complaint back then was about the coldness of the score, 
with its focused repetitions and chiseled orchestration. This was emphasized by an exacting violinist, Paul Zukovsky, and conductor Dennis Russell Davies. Zukovsky in particular was a brilliant virtuoso who loathed the sentimental use of vibrato and portamenti, the sliding along a violin string of one note to another. The concerto has become a popular modern classic and the property of a wide range of violinists. When L.A. Field Concertmaster Martin Chalifauer uh, played the first bold performance of the concerto in 2008, he was, a true, he was true to Zukovsky's and Glass's elegance. Violinist N. Akiko Myers, however, had very different ideas about the concerto on Tuesday. Treating the solo part as something in a romantic-era concerto of yore, she was all sentiment all the time, including lots of emotive vibrato and, start an, and a, start, a startling uh, portamento leaps in the slow movements. Kamenesek maintained a reasonable pulse, but happily joined in from uh, making big moments as big as they could get. It would be easy to be taken aback. Yet this is what performers have done throughout the centuries, making the music theirs. Bach and Mozart were not around to protest. Glass is, and so are some of us. Even so, Glass has always had an open mind, and he was on hand to take a bow. Nevertheless, an illuminating 2017 recording of the concerto on Glass's own label, Orange Mountain Music, with violinist Renaud Kapukon and Davies conducting, tells another far more convincing story. Holtz's The Planet was the final spectacle on Tuesday night, and there was nothing cool about it. Not unlike Myers's way with, uh, with, with heavy emphasis on just about every detail. <clears throat> the thumping five-fourths rhythm in the opening section, Mars the Bringer of War, emulated the thudding beat of soldiers and weaponry in relentless attacks. Holtz's musical telescope is, of course, meant for astrology, not astronomy, and whether buoyant Mercury, seductively peaceful Venus, jolly Victorian Jupiter, cranky old Saturn, or magician Uranus, each was sketched with show-offy, neon-bright colors, and climaxes of extreme power. The amplification, moreover, was loud and surround-sound cinematic. Uh, bass notes on the electric organ made the ground under our feet seem to vibrate. But something interesting happened at the end. Holst leaves the listener in the far removes of outer space, with Neptune being a study in musical mysticism highlighted by a hidden hymning women's chorus, as if heard from a mysterious distance. Here, though, the members of the Pacific Choral were so boldly amplified that they became a disconcerting but oddly effective presence. It was as if the spirit of P-22 had come back for a final appearance. That was The Bull Salutes a True Hollywood Cat by Mark Swed, music critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Monday, September 18, 2023. Okay, and now let's go on to some articles from Jay Living from the Rosh Hashanah section 5784 from the community section. This is called Biting Food Desserts. Partnership for Growth LA Project Freedom Farms will address food instability and economic inequality through urban farming by Casey J. Adler. What's it like to be food insecure? I asked Chance Parker, a writer and post-production PA who has worked in every 
everything from hair salons and Uber Eats as she bounces from job to job in the volatile entertainment industry. You feel out of control. You literally feel like you don't uh, know how you're going to survive, how you're going to make it to the next day. You're counting your food. You're counting what you have available to you. And you're just trying to figure out how you can have money to, uh, to even eat. I remember when I first moved to Los Angeles, I was working a lot, but I didn't have a lot of money. And one time I went two days without food. I didn't have anything to eat, and I just kind of resigned. I would steal my roommate's yogurts. Sometimes you have a little bit of money and you go grocery shopping at the dollar store because that is all that you can afford. I have $5 so I can get five things that last me five days. Unfortunately, Parker isn't the only person in Los Angeles with these experiences. In April, Henley and Partners ranked Los Angeles as the sixth wealthiest city in the world. Yet, according to USC's Dornside Public Exchange, one in four Angelinos face food insecurity in 2022. And to compound the systemic struggles for the working class, 10 out of 18 food retail stores in South LA, the majority of black and brown neighborhoods, do not sell fresh food, fruits or vegetables. Parker, who has lived in various parts of Los Angeles, including South LA, believes that these food desser uh, desserts are by design. It's so clever when where the lines in these neighborhoods are drawn, and what's available in certain areas is clearly not available in a lot of the others. This is where the emergence of a unique Black and Jewish collaboration comes into power. Partnership for Growth Los Angeles, led by Pastor Eddie Anderson of Mark McCartney Memorial Church and Rabbi Joel Simmons, president of the Jewish Center for, Lust for Justice, is breaking ground on their latest initiative, Freedom Farms. Backed by seven mil a $7 million state grant secured by U.S. Representative Sidney Kamlager-Dobb, Freedom Farms will address food instability and economic inequality through urban farming. Pastor Eddie and Rabbi Joel, longtime friends and collaborators in the social justice movement, both echo the power of their minority communities to come together to meet dire circumstances. Pastor Eddie specifically noted the shared narratives around the Black and Jewish experience. One could argue that at Passover, when people remember being freed from Egypt, where you can eat unleavened bread, shake the leaf, have the bones. That is a story of food insecurity. For Black people in America, the Exodus narrative is essential to how we break the chains. Rabbi Joel elucidated their common vision of deepening the connection between the communities. We want this to be in every urban settling, setting ac uh, across the country five years from now, in which it's not just urban farming, but it's partnerships. It's the Black and the Jewish community not just telling the story of Reverend King and Rabbi Heschel and not just doing pulpit exchanges on MLK Day, not to knock any of that, but we, but if we have the capacity to do more and we're not, then we're not really seeing our potential. In order to achieve their goals, Freedom Farms will be designed by Brendan Wilson, owner of Angel City Urban Farms, which hires formerly incarcerated people and teaches them how to garden. Freedom Farms is meant to grow food and get it out to people, Wilson said as he walked me through the through Good Earth Community Garden in West Adams. People live in places where if you don't have a car and you need something in your tummy right now, the only option options are to go to the corner grocery store, which doesn't sell anything that is really wholesome. That has to be fixed. 
But then all of the inhabit all of that habits also need to be fixed. People need to be introduced to the idea of what is a wholesome meal and demystify the just the simple act of cooking or using fresh food because there's a lot of backwardness that comes from not being able to have access to good food, which leads to people just making terrible choices. However, there are inherent obstacles to growing food in an urban setting as opposed to large swaths of land in rural neighborhoods. <clears throat> the major problem Wilson highlighted is the land itself. That is why the initiative will begin uh, with urban leasing. From there, Pastor Eddie explained the following steps. Master farmers will work with the community group, the church, the people who owned the land. Then we will bring in a team of folks who are from the community around you who work on that farm, as well as hiring former, formerly incarcerated at-risk youth and seniors to work on the farms. The food, once produced, goes in four channels. One is local restaurants, farm to table. I call that uh, the bespoke model because you're growing food for these kinds of restaurants. They need specific things and you want to make sure you can grow it for them at that rate. The other will be farmer's markets, grocery stores, and bodegas. Every freedom farm will be a part of a crop swap. That means a percentage of the food that is grown will go to the community for free. The term farm to table is often associated with upper class neighborhoods, Rabbi Joel commented. He believes that in creating a new microeconomy, their joint organization will facilitate a reimagining of what it means to eat farm to table that it will no longer be just a concept for the wealthiest of communities. Therefore, facilitating urban farms will not only bring healthier options to these communities, but will also help close the gap in how far a community member has to go to purchase fresh produce. In the part of South LA Parker used to live, uh, used to live in, there were only two uh, grocery stores she could venture to. They weren't close to where my roommate and I lived, so we had to travel. I didn't have a car, so I would have to get a backpack and load it up with food and take it on the bus or pay for a taxi, which is expensive. When urban far while urban farming is emerging as a new industry across the nation, it is important to note black farming is nothing new. Jasmine Ratliff, co-executive director of the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, was quoted in the Food Tanks article about black-led food co-ops. We think back in the 1920s, when there were nearly a million black farmers in the United States, and now we're less than 1% of farmers. I asked Pastor Eddie to describe how black America went from stewards of agriculture in the early 20th century to being locked out of the farms and markets of the 21st century. His breadth of African-American history invariably touched on his own familial history. After the Emancipation Proclamation, black people, my ancestors, were local sharecroppers. So they knew very much how to work the land. My particular lineage of folks come from the deep south, Georgia, the coastal plains. And so they're what you would call Geechee Gula folks. They were rice farmers and they did task slavery. And so they lived off the land. I bring this up because my grandfather and my great-grandfather both had farms. They both owned land, both sides of the family. They owned acres and acres of land. So when the GI Bill came up in the 40s after the World War and they started doing farmers subsidies, they basically did that for white farmers and not so much for black farmers. And then land 
and then the land that people lived on and owned were also being taken from them. And so we saw food become weaponized in the black community. The people got impoverished, and although they worked the land, they weren't able to sell their food at scale at market rate. And so cooperative were, uh, were the way in which we were able to aggregate and pool the food from the very small farms around and hope that it would make it to the local corner store, the local market, or crop swap. As a means to achieving the goal of a vast network of freedom farms across Los Angeles, Rabbi Joel is adamant that there must be more black and Jewish partnerships than there have been in the past. We can't just be putting together coalitions, he said, in an animated conversation over Zoom. We have to be putting together organizations in which we combine our bank accounts. We are legally putting together our organizations so that we have this binding. Perhaps a Freudian slip since Rosh Hashanah is around the corner, but it doesn't seem to be a coincidence that Rabbi Joel used binding in reference to the commitment of his part this partnership. Traditionally read on the second day of the High Holy Day, the binding of Isaac is not mere merely a story about blind loyalty but a story against human sacrifice. In the contemporary sense, where when one and four Angelinos are food insecure, that is a type of sacrifice that can no longer be accepted. For people like Chance Parker, who experienced that inability to purchase food or good food, the change can happen soon enough. Overall, I look forward to a time when I'm not stressed about where I'm going to secure my next meal, she said. I look forward to a time in my life when I'm ha not having to think about where I'm even going to get the funds to secure my next meal. That was Fighting Food Desserts by Casey J. Adler by from the Community section. For more information, visit PartnershipForGrowthLA.org. Let's read some articles from the Jewish Journal for September 22nd to the 28th, 2023. We start off with the, the, the editor's notes section. This is called The Jewish Way is Renew, Not Redo by David Suisa. In the industry of self-help, one of the more popular ideas in recent years has been the do-over. If you're unhappy or feeling unfulfilled, just share the old you and start over. We also hear that sentiment at the beginning of each calendar year, out with the old, in with the new. Even in our view of American history, we've witnessed an instinct to shed the foundational events of our past. The highly publicized 1619 Project, for example, an ongoing initiative of the New York Times, skips over the country's official founding in 1776 and reframes our history around the first vote to bring slaves in 1619. This effort to reframe and redefine the past as if history itself needs a do-over takes the easy way out. Rather than doing the hard work of digging into our foundational narratives and texts as our basis to seek progress, we jump to new and reductive narratives based on convenient agendas. A new me, a new story, a new day. The Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah teaches us a different approach to the past. Instead of a redo, we aim to renew. We're obligated not to gloss over our existing narratives, but to go all in with deep contemplation and self-appraisal. To improve ourselves, we must engage in a specific accounting of where we went wrong, and then ask for forgiveness and commit to what we must do right. We don't ignore or reframe the bad. We correct it by returning to our better selves. Indeed, 
Rosh Hashanah is very much about returning to the better angels of our nature. In the immortal words of President Abraham Lincoln, how ironic that the 1619 Project is returning us to the worst angels, uh, angels of our nature. The foundational texts of American and Judaism, the Constitution and the Torah, are living documents that have built-in mechanisms to help us renew ourselves. By having faith in these sacred texts and constantly wrestling with them to help us and help us progress, we can move forward in a spirit of shared ideals and common destiny. When Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. fought for the civil rights of his black brethren, he had faith in America's foundational texts, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and the Bill of Rights. He knew the mechanisms of redress were already there. So in seeking justice for his community, he didn't ask America for anything new. Instead, he asked his country to cash the check he already had. King and others didn't seek a reframe or a do-over of America. He challenged his nation to live up to its ideals and, in the process, helped America renew itself. This is what President Obama referred to when he urged our nation to work for a more perfect union. We don't redo our union, we perfect it. We renew it. The high holy days from Rosh Hashanah to the days of awe to Yom Kippur are in that same spirit. They call on us to renew ourselves by living up to the ideals enshrined in our foundational texts. To improve as a Jew and as a human being, I don't need to shed the old me or the, or the old texts. I need to look deeply into both and reconnect with my better self. Staying true to a narrative, whether for a country or a person, keeps us honest and helps us repent. If we hurt someone, we need to see that action clearly, not reframe it to see it differently. The action of hurting is the very narrative we must confront and correct. It is that act of repair that leads us to the better angels of our nature. Yom Kippur is the culmination of that process. When we get to the final prayer of Nila, emotionally and physically drained as the gates of heaven are about to close, we know we'll be renewed, renewed, we'll be renewed when we feel the presence of those angels. Have an easy and meaningful fast. That was The Jewish Way is Renew, Not Redo by David Suisa from the Editor's Notes section. All right, we go on to the Columnist section. This is called The Toddler Who Uplifted Jews Worldwide by Tabby Raphael. This is the story of a little boy who uplifted Jewish communities throughout the world and in Los Angeles in particular. His name was Michael Levy, and he was my little cousin. Michael's family are Jews who escaped Iran so that their children and future generations could live in freedom and prosperity rather than suffer from tyranny. His mother, Carolyn, is my first paternal cousin. His father, Josh, is a longtime friend. Josh and Carolyn are two of the kindest, most down-to-earth people I have ever known. They were overjoyed when their first child, Michael, was born in 2020. But last year, Michael began to struggle, began struggling to maintain his balance. His parents knew something was wrong. On his second birthday, Michael was diagnosed with an aggressive and inoperable brain tumor. I'll never forget get Carolyn's voice when she told me the news. At the time, she was pregnant with their second child. I was stunned and saddened, and I knew Michael would need a special Tehillim Psalms group on WhatsApp so that Jews of all backgrounds could recite chapters for him around the clock. Sadly, I had participated in several such groups for other battle, others battling cancer, including my beautiful friend and teacher, Sharon Schenker, who passed away in January. 
Hundreds of Jews worldwide, including secular ones, quickly joined the WhatsApp group and began reading Tehillim in the merit of Michael's Refua Shlema, complete healing and recovery in Hebrew. At precisely the time when I fell asleep in Los Angeles in Israel, 7,500 miles away, Jews who had never met Michael or his family were reciting Tehillim for him. In the months that passed, Michael began grueling chemotherapy and radiation treatment and became a big brother as the family welcomed a second baby boy. Jews stepped up their efforts to pray for Michael as well as to raise funds for his family to help cover the enormous costs of medical and child care. We will be eternally grateful to the countless Jewish organizations that also helped make miracles for Michael and his family, including Rofe Holim Cancer Society in New York and Bakur Holim High Lifeline, Biahad, and Mamad Nonprofit in LA. Of course, Children's Hospital of Los Angeles was a true blessing. Several months ago, on the advice of a local rabbi, 40 Jewish women committed to fully covering their hair in the merit of Michael's complete recovery. To my amazement, they took on this mitzvah with love and discipline. Many of them hadn't met Michael and his family. Some friends privately expressed skepticism to me, questioning whether it was right to suggest that if a group of people performed a mitzvah, a miracle would occur on Michael's behalf. After all, God is not a celestial vending machine, and 40 straight days of hair covering was not a guarantee of anything. Carolyn, in all her pain, wisdom, and spirituality, had a response to such skepticism. The fact that those women committed to such a mitzvah helped her feel cared for and connected with others. It gave her hope. That was enough. Michael had many ups and downs. On January 1, he suffered a seizure, and doctors predicted he would live for only a few more weeks. But he miraculously recovered from the seizure. The name Chaim was added to the beginning of his name in the hope that his body would be infused with life. There were days when watching the effects of his treatment on his body tore his parents' hearts in two. And then there were days when he had more energy and, best of all, showed signs of his former healthier self. Just another two-year-old boy with all the lovable, maddening, and momentous traits of toddlerhood. At the end of the 40-day period, a lecture and reception was held so that women in our local community could honor those who had participated in the mitzvah of covering their hair. The luminous speaker and author, Sarah Pachter, shared a, a profound wisdom from the Torah. But before Pachter spoke, Carolyn surprised attendees and shared a few words. She thanked everyone and then, looking into a crowd of worried faces, said that Michael's doctors were stunned that he was still alive and some of them described his condition as a miracle. Carolyn told the hundreds of women in attendance that in the last 40 days, Michael had been more happy and energetic than she had ever seen him after his diagnosis. What prompted a woman to fully cover her hair on behalf of a sick toddler? Or for a couple of to donate extra funds to a family in another city, or for that matter, another country whom they've never met? It's the same bond that prompts thousands of people, regardless of their level of Jewish observance, to recite short or long verses of Tehillim at all hours of the day, whether they're on a break at work, getting their kids ready for bed, or going for, a, for an early morning walk. It's the eternal unbreakable bond of Jewish communities for millennia, and it's the reason why Jews will always exist. At the end of those 40 days, those women didn't simply put their hair coverings off. Some of them shared that they had grown to love the commitment 
and wanted to maintain it. In late June, Carolyn told me that she wanted to throw Michael a small birthday party at the park. We both knew it had to be very special, and we secured his favorite foods, gifts, and even a list of his favorite songs, which my friend Sarita Oberman, an engaging children's singer, volunteered to perform. Carolyn told me that it all made Michael so happy. Last week, on September 13, Michael Levy passed away at the age of three, two days before Rosh Hashanah. The heartbreak is indescribable. It's safe to say that this is one of the lowest moments for our family in the 30 years since we've been in the United States. But we've been amazed by the outpouring of love, prayers, and good deeds from others in L.A. and around the world. There is a meal train donations, and volunteer babysitters have already signed up to help Carolyn and Josh care for Michael's one-year-old brother. As for the Tehillim group, it's still active. Heartbroken Jews are now praying for Michael's Nishama to have an aliyah. At the burial, Josh said that those who prayed and performed mitzvot for Michael extended his life. Experience has taught me that when your heart is broken, you should do an act of kindness for someone else. It seems counterintuitive given that you need time to nurse your own wounds. But for some reason, offering kindness to someone else while you own, your own heart is shattered, shattered is uh, one of the only ways to recollect the pieces of your heart. Michael Levy was a special little boy, kind, loving, and deeply lovable. Some believe that he was a truly pure soul that needed to come back down to earth for a few years to complete a mission. I can't bring myself to ask why he's no longer with us. I am only reminded of an allegory a rabbi shared when my first cousin, Dr. Shavnam Torbadi Karendian, succumbed to cancer in 2015. She was a beloved wife, mother, and pediatrician. Back then, the rabbis shared that life in this world is like the back of a tapestry, unpredictable, chaotic, and often senseless. But the harmony of the world to come, a world which we will hopefully enter after 120 years, but whose inner workings we will never know in this world, is like the front of a tapestry, peaceful, beautiful, and maybe, just maybe, something that finally makes a little sense. Yamara Hatima Toba. That was the toddler who uplifted Jews worldwide by Tevi Raphael from the columnist section. Tevi Raphael is an award-winning writer, speaker, and weekly columnist for the Jewish Journal of Greater Los Angeles. Follow her on X and Instagram at Tevi Raphael. All right, and also from the columnist section, this is called The Best of Times, Worst of Times by Dan Schnur. This past Sunday, Los Angeles' largest daily newspaper published an extremely compelling and equally timely article about a city's Jewish population as it welcomed the new year. The story was framed in the context of a historic and debilitating crisis. The writer combined an overview of the broader policy ramifications of the catastrophe together with poignant personal stories of perseverance, optimism, and generosity. It was an ideal way for a secular media outlet to both recognize the importance of our high holy days while explaining that in many ways, our community's obstacles and opportunities are extremely similar to those of, of our friends and neighbors. The city on which this article was written was not Los Angeles, but rather Kharkiv, a Ukrainian municipality not far from that country's border with Russia. Times reporter Laura King helped us understand how Jewish families there have navigated such unimaginable upheaval in their lives. She told inspiring stories 
how Kharkiv's Jews have survived in the face of such terror and their support for other Ukrainians is in overcoming their own challenges. A few days earlier, the Times had posted another article about a city's, this city's Jewish community, as we prepared for Rosh Hashanah. The headline alluding to the tough times that LA Jews are facing. In service of that premise, the writer could have focused on the rising spread of anti-Semitism, or perhaps how increasing rates of intermarriage, secularization, and non-affiliated Judaism were affecting the community. The Times might have taken a look at the challenges that Jewish and other pro-Israel students are facing on their college campuses, or possibly the efforts that Jews and other underrepresented communities are making to form and strengthen uh, multi-faith and multi-ethnic coalitions. An ambitious reporter might have used the High Holy Days as an opportunity to explore the generational divisions among American Jews relating to our homeland and our faith, or how our commemoration of Jewish history might change so as many Holocaust survivors pass away. Any one of these conversations could have been an impactful and evocative discussion of both commonalities that Jews and other ethnic and religious groups face, along with the uniqueness of the Jewish community and its approach to these challenges. Instead, what we got was yet another Jews in Hollywood story, albeit one that focused on Jews who are striking against the entertainment industry as opposed to running it. To the Times' credit, the reporter did take the time to refute the trope of Jewish control of Hollywood. But then the rest of the article turned to an an extensive assessment of the high cost of belonging to a synagogue or purchasing tickets for high holy day services, which in effect replaced the anti-Semitic slur of wealthy Jews running Hollywood with one of wealthy Jews preventing their less advantaged counterparts from worshiping. It's difficult to argue that this represents a great deal of progress. To be clear, I have great sympathy for the writers and actors who are facing such economic and professional uncertainty. We have friends and family whose livelihoods depend on a successful resolution of their current stalemate, and I am hoping for a fast and just outcome. But it's unclear why the Times, which has told the story of the striking workers effectively and consistently throughout the last several months, chose to cut and paste their standard strike coverage on top of an article regarding a religious community's observance of our holiest days. Reporting, explaining, and making sense of the extraordinary mixture of cultures, ethnicities, and religions that comprise comprise America in the 21st century is a daunting task. When they set their mind to it, the times can still rise to the occasion. Their new polling project examining the attitudes of the nation's immigrants also premiered on Sunday. It clearly required a tremendous amount of resources and an admirable commitment to helping its readers understand a complicated and important topic in an incisive and nuanced way, which makes their cavalier and backhanded treatment of the Jewish community here so much more disappointing. That was Best of the Times, The Worst of the Times by Dan Schnur from the Columnist section. Dan Schnur is the U.S. politics editor for the Jewish Journal. He teaches courses in politics, communication, and leadership at UC Berkeley, USC, and Pepperdine. He hosts the monthly webinar, the Dan Schnur Political Report for the Los Angeles World Affairs Council and Town Hall. Follow Dan's work at www.danschnurpolitics.com. Also from the columnist section, Trusting in Hashem and Taking Time Off by Kylie Ora Lobel. 
The high holy days are stressful for many people because they have to take so much time off from work. If they work full time, this means using up vacation days. And if they work for themselves, this means not making money for long stretches of time. Jews believe that the source of all our success comes from Hashem. We are supposed to work hard and put in our hishdad vlut, our effort, but we are also not supposed to push ourselves so much that we have trouble fulfilling other mitzvot like learning Torah, observing Shabbat, and taking care of our families and ourselves. We aren't supposed to suffer when making a living. We are supposed to do as much as we can to the best of our ability and leave the rest up to Hashem. As someone who has been, a, been self-employed for most of my career, I find taking time off to be incredibly difficult. At those points of my life when I did work full-time, I felt uncomfortable requesting so many days off every fall. When I became more observant, I heard that it, that it was a custom to take time to take off for whole Hamoed, the intermediate festive days during Sukkot as well. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. However, now I have a different perspective on it due to my recent events due to recent events that occurred in my life. This past summer was very challenging. My husband Daniel and I got robbed at the beginning of May, and that same day I contracted strep throat and stayed in bed for 48 hours straight. The strep came back three times that month. A few weeks after the robbery, Daniel's beloved grandmother died. Daniel went uh, to Scotland with our oldest daughter to attend his grandmother's funeral and spend time with his family. We booked a ticket for them to stay a week, but when he was over there, he got an ear infection and couldn't fly home for five weeks. My youngest daughter and I were all alone during that time, and I missed my husband and oldest daughter like crazy. July was spent catching up on everything we missed doing together, and it was also the three weeks I didn't listen to music or celebrate any special occasions. I reflected on the destruction of the temples and had a challenging Tisha B'Av because I'm a terrible faster. By the time August rolled around, I was so burnt out that I pleaded to Daniel to go on a road trip with our kids and dogs. Still recovering from the ear infection, he was hesitant but agreed. I told everyone I worked with that I was going to be out of the office. I packed up our belongings and booked us a nice hotel. And when the Sunday we were, uh, we were supposed to leave finally arrived, the hurricane struck Los Angeles. Daniel wanted to cancel our trip, but I insisted that we go. We drove seven hours in the rain, but we made it. For four glorious days, I switched out of work mode. I didn't reply to my emails or write or edit anything. I relaxed with my family and felt the happiest I have in ages. I also tried not to be anxious about work, praying that this time off would uh, would be restorative. When I got back into the office the day after our trip, my inbox was flooded with requests. I was busier than ever. I thanked Hashem for giving me the time off without losing any work. In fact, they sent more on my way because I took care of myself. Taking time off during the holidays or year-round and putting yourself into Hashem's hands isn't easy, but it's exactly what He wants us to do. If this time of year is challenging, say to yourself, Hashem knows what's best for me. If I take time off, I'm trusting that it will work out better for me in the end. And I promise you, it will. Do you have thoughts about taking time off from work? Email me, kylieol at jewishjournal.com. That was Trusting in Hashem and Taking Time Off by Kylie Ora Lobel from the columnist section. 
Kylie Oralobel is the community editor of the Jewish Journal. Also from the columnist section, this is called The Healing Power of Community by Jeremy J. Fingerman. I've been pondering the significance of why we start each Jewish New Year with such an intense focus on community. During the High Holy Days, synagogues reach full capacity as congregants come together for extended services. We collectively recite prayers in the plural form, emphasizing our shared responsibility and identities as the Jewish people and highlighting the interconnectedness of our Jewish community. We silently stand together as a community listening intently to the resonating blast of the shofar calling us to action. A physical presence in large numbers, whether regular attendees or occasional visitors, underscores a sense of unity and shared purpose. We celebrate these holy days with the festive meals shared among family and friends. These meals provide opportunities for bonding, reflection, forgiveness, and reconciliation, as well as the expression of gratitude and blessings. The act of coming together around a table filled with festive foods and traditional Jewish dishes reinforces the importance of community, the value of relationships, and our shared Jewish identity and history. Moreover, being a part of community and feeling a sense of belonging has tremendous healing benefits as well. In the midst of a global mental health crisis that touches all of us, the healing power of community cannot be overstated. This crisis, a growing concern worldwide, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, only exacerbated mental, emotional, social, and spiritual health issues. Isolation, anxiety, economic hardship, and loneliness became even more pronounced during the lockdowns and social distancing measures, especially among youth, teens, and young adults. Remote work blurred the boundaries between professional and personal lives, adding further stress and burnout. Many of us feel weary, anxious, and lonely. The rise of anti-Semitism, increased polarization, relentless news articles, the intensity and immediacy of social media contribute to how we perceive ourselves and those around us. Some use this as a reason to remain at home, separated and removed from others. However, staying isolated at home only intensifies our loneliness and possibly worsens our mental health. Instead, I advocate for just the opposite, heeding the sound of the shofar by showing up and seeking community. We can draw inspiration from the strength of collective communal experiences deeply ingrained in Jewish life, tradition, and culture. In my work at the Foundation for Jewish Camp, I have witnessed firsthand how the Jewish summer camp experience serves as a model for nurturing, caring, and supportive communities that can significantly improve individuals' mental health and well-being. The camp experience is more necessary than ever before. A screen-free environment where children can be active physically and engaged socially. This past summer, campers and counselors alike thrived at over 300 Jewish day and overnight camps across North America. They fostered cultures of kindness and developed, and developed essential life skills, resilience, problem solving, communication, and leadership, while at the same time cultivating a love of Jewish tradition and a deeper connection to Jewish life. Research confirms that limiting or restricting screen time enables campers to be physically active and engaging, interacting with people around them, which enhances their sense of presence and connection. Through activities that require teamwork and cooperation, 
Campers experience shared accomplishments that build unity, trust, and empathy. Moreover, they develop improved self-confidence and self-esteem. Jewish camps go even further by offering Hanahim campers near-peer role models, Mad Madrichim counselors who exemplify joy-filled Judaism. They create a sense of belonging and acceptance, embodying a core strength of the Jewish communal experience. The High Holy Days serve as a poignant reminder of the importance of community, collective responsibility, and shared values within the Jewish tradition. The sound of the shofar calls on Jews to unite, reflect on our actions, and strengthen our connections with one another and with our faith. This profound sense of communal togetherness is a hallmark of Jewish camp and the High Holy Days, offering spiritual and emotional support for many within the Jewish community. As we embark on the journey of 5784, may we all be blessed to truly feel the warmth of connection across all of our communities, benefiting from healing power to, of togetherness in these challenging times. That was The Healing Power of Community by Jeremy J. Fingerman from the Columnist section. Jeremy J. Fingerman has served as CEO of Foundation for Jewish Camps since 2010. Recently, he received the 2013 Bernard Reisman Award for Professional Excellence from Brandeis University. He may be reached at jeremy at jewishcamp.org. And again, from the colonist section, this is called Sandy by Morton Shapiro. For many Jews, Yom Kippur is our most meaningful holiday. There is the haunting melody of Kol Nidra, the poignancy of Yizkor, the elation of breaking the fast with friends and family, and for some of us, there's Sandy Koufax. Anyone who follows sports knows that Sandy was one of the greatest ball play baseball players of all time. Sports Illustrated, upon naming him its favorite athlete of the 20th century, dubbed the left-handed star pitcher of the LA Dodgers the left arm of God. But what comes first to mind for many of us is the fact that he chose to set out Game 1 of the 1965 World Series in observance of Yom Kippur. In Jane Levy's captivating biography, Sandy Koufax, A Lefty's Legacy, she cites a line from the notorious anti-Semite Henry Ford, Jews are not sportsmen. While Jewish athletes and a range of sports prove Ford wrong every day, it was Sandy Koufax whose actions spoke to something that transcended athletics, that Judaism could be a source of pride and exhilaration in all aspects of life. Dodger pitcher John Drysdale, like Sandy, a future Hall of Famer, ended up pitching in Sandy's absence. Uncharacteristically, Drysdale pitched terribly. Upon being removed by manager Walter Alston in the third inning, with the Dodgers down 7-1, Drysdale had one of the greatest quips ever. I bet you wish I was Jewish too. While Sandy ended up being the losing pitcher in Game 2, the day after Yom Kippur, he returned for a Game 5 of the World Series, pitching a four-hit shutout. Then again, on only two days rest, Sandy pitched another shutout in Game 7, this time giving up only three hits. The Dodgers won the World Series, and not surprisingly, Sandy was named Most Valuable Player. It's clear from Levy's book that Sandy is both very humble and very private. The few interviews he has granted over the years display a sincere reticence with being an icon. He has been quick to state that he wasn't even the first Jewish baseball star to set out a game on Yom Kippur. That Hank Greenberg, 
another Hall of Famer, had done this, exactly that in 1934. But those days were pre-television, and it wasn't a front-page news story, it was three decades later. I am not alone in pointing to that remarkable day in 1965 as a milestone in American Jewish identity. It was shortly before I became a bar mitzvah, and after that faithful Yom Kippur, my friends and I declared ourselves to be lifelong Dodger fans. In my career as an economist and college president, I have had the opportunity to meet a wide array of politicians, authors, actors, and other luminaries. I am rarely starstruck, but one day I was at Wrigley Field watching the Cubs host the Dodgers. I ran into a friend who invited me into a suite. When I walked in, I noticed someone out of the corner of my eye. My friend said, Morty, I would like you to meet Sandy. There he was, the man himself. I shook his hand and tried to explain what he has meant to my life, but words failed me. My eyes filled with tears. Sandy put his hands on my shoulder and told me to take a deep breath. He said, don't be embarrassed. I'm not the only Jewish guy my age to have had that reaction. Ten minutes later, I returned to my seat. I was a Shen, and my wife anxiously asked if I needed medical assistance. Still speechless, I reached for my phone and showed her the picture my friend had taken. Sandy Koufax and me, standing together smiling. I looked at that photo almost every day. On Yom Kippur, while we might not enter the sports record books, we may, all be, may we all be inscribed in the Book of Life. And may the great sportsman Sandy Koufax continue to inspire us with unending Jewish pride during these days of awe and always. That was Sandy by Morton Shapiro from the columnist section. Morton Shapiro is the former president of Williams College and Northwestern University. His most recent book with Gary Shul Morrison is Minds Wide Shut, How New Fundamentalisms Divide Us. Right now we go to this from the My Turn section. This is called The Immaculate Reception by Rabbi Simon Jacobson. I woke Tuesday morning to find the following email in my inbox. Dear Rabbi, as we approach Rosh Hashanah, I feel compelled to make a confession. As the diehard skeptic I am, I was ready to honor the new year with the usual resigned, even sarcastic attitude. Yeah, I'll probably go to synagogue, but mostly out of guilt. My parents, grandparents, the Holocaust, mixed with a little tradition and a lot of superstition. What's there to lose? Let me make my annual deal with God to be sealed in the book of life for a blessed year. I'll do my routine praying, but for me and so many others, it's more like a, a lip service by route mechanical faith. But then, after watching the miraculous Jets win Monday night against the Buffalo Bills, I could not help but think, are there indeed miracles in life? Was this God's hand? I mean, Garrett Wilson's absurd logic-defying catch to basically tie the game in the last minutes when all seemed lost. Uh, Javier Gibson's amazing punt return touchdown to win the game in overtime, no less, and all this on the heels, no pun intended, of Aaron Rodgers' season career-ending devastating injury just four days into his highly anticipated first game with the Jets? Is this a divine sign? Is this some form of wake-up call to all of us, but especially to the doubters, just days before the high holidays, that perhaps there is an invisible hand behind the scenes choreographing the narrative of our lives? Yes, I know that. As we speak, young children are dying of cancer, Innocent people are suffering, and the world has plenty of problems, and we sure can use some miracles. One thing does not negate the other. 
Sure, one winning game in football doesn't mean much in the scheme of life challenges. But should we ignore an incredible event that makes our eyes rub in disbelief? If such an unlikely scenario can happen in front of millions, how many more unlikely miracles can take place in our lives? Can prayer help? My dear friend, I replied, allow me to share with you my timeless words of the great mystic and founder of the Hasidic movement, the Baal Shem Tov. The difference between a miracle and a natural event is only one thing, frequency. Were the sun to rise once in our lifetimes, we would all be rushing outside with our families and, and friends with camera crews and media attention, gazing at the heaven and saying, Awesome! Look at that flaming ball in the sky rising in the horizon. Just look at the attention a solar eclipse attracts. But since it happens every day without fail, we take it for granted and seek out other novelties, healthy or unhealthy, that will provide us with a new rush of excitement. This is human nature. Every new healthy children uh, are born. Every moment new healthy children are born. Is that not a miracle? Think, a seed, uh, a seed fertilizes an egg and a new life is conceived. One cell, one single cell splits into two, then into four, then into eight, and over nine months a full and complete child with over 40 trillion cells emerges from its mother's womb. That is you with all your beauty and complexities with all your nobility and neuroses. Is that not a miracle? But since children are born all the time, we lose sight and get distracted by the superficial, impermanent experiences of our lives. How many things must work right for every, for, for every breath we inhale? A healthy adult takes around 12 to 20 breaths per minute. Do you even notice? But, when, but then when you see someone on a respirator struggling to breathe, suddenly realize the miracle of just one breath. Life is a miracle, and miracles abound everywhere if you only choose to look. From time to time, the invisible hand does reveal itself to remind us of the miracles that are already there, just waiting for us to embrace them, to channel them into our lives. When asked, where is God? Rib Menachem Mendel of Kotsk said, wherever you let him in. If I may side by side, irreverently cite Michelangelo, when he was asked how he sculpts those beautiful angels in the marble, he appropriately replied, I see the angel trapped in the marble, so I carved and carved to set it free. The Jets' miraculous win in the days when we prepare to enter a new year and celebrate the collective birthday of the human race on Rosh Hashanah reminds us of the miracles and angels trapped in our material, distracted lives, and the call of the shofar awakens us to do our part in unleashing them. Our prayers and good deeds carve away the outer excesses allowing our souls to emerge and shine. On Rosh Hashanah, after Adam had sinned, God cried out to Adam, Where are you? And this is the question we are all asked on this day. Where do you stand in your life? Have you betrayed yourself and your destiny? Are you present, serving as my partner to transform this world into a spiritual garden? Are you living up to your mission and calling? I recall a cynical guy asking me at one point of my classes, Hey, can a tzaddik, a pious, God-fearing person, fly? I simply replied, I don't know if he can fly, but I can tell you that for him or her, walking on earth is as miraculous as flying. Every step we take, every breath we make, Every fiber of existence is brimming with enormous energy and potential. 
if anything, that Jed's improbable win opens our eyes and ears to seeing the miracles in every moment. To see, in Blake's words, a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower, old infinity in the palm of your hand and eternal eternity in an, in an hour. To experience the extraordinary in the ordinary. That was the Immaculate Reception by Rabbi Simon Jacobson from the Mitran section. Rabbi Simon Jacobson is the author uh, Toward a Meaningful Life from Mora Publishing, 1995-2021. And the Dean of the Meaningful Life Center. Website is www.meaningfullife.com. All right, also from the My Turn section, this is called Yom Kippur, A Womb of Compassion by Rabbi and Cantor Eva Robbins. The most intense of all the holidays is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, filled with an aura of heaviness and awesomeness. Most Jews feel this intense sense of dread. Even the most rational among us respond from deep in the gut, feeling ill at ease, desiring to receive explanation or some, uh, some semblance of release from the weighty sense of guilt and remorse after confronting our misdeeds. We stand together, even if apart, expressing the many possibilities of destructive behavior, inappropriate or sinful, beating our chest and awakening our hearts to how far we can fall or stray. Kapare, which means to cover, and is also the name of the top of the golden ark the Israelites carried through the desert that held both the broken and newly created tablets given to Moshe. It is as we are covered with the kind of schmutz, particles of unseemly molecules that hover within and around us, aware of a deep sense of diminished purity. We are reminded that two books lay before us, the book of life and the book of death, and our name is found somewhere amongst others in one or the other. To put salt in the wound of uh, the liturgy goes on to describe uh, the many possi possible ways we might come to our end, and though couched in the language of the Middle Ages, quite simply, it mentions all of the possible natural elements, fire, water, earthquake, etc., most of which we have seen in abundance over this last year. If we modernize the possibilities then psycho-emotional spiritual possibilities abound. Overdose, suicide, mass shootings, anti-Semitic hatred, ill health, and disease. And yet for some, the book is just empty pages waiting to be filled. Aware that despite accidents and being the wrong place at the wrong time, we have the capacity to write our own future. Choosing moral, ethical, and caring behaviors towards others and ourselves, we can lift our lives in goodness. However, death is inevitable. Yom Kippur comes to remind us of that fact, since much of the ritual is purposefully created by the rabbis to enact our death, tasting tiny morsels of reality, and focus on the what's truly important, cleansing our souls so that they can move into the next world free and unencumbered. We wear white, a reminder of the shroud we will be buried in and deprived of, deprive our bodies of the daily care and nourishment we need to stay alive feeling grungy, hungry, and tired, a far cry from being full of vitality. We focus through prayer, song, and med meditation on honesty, self-awareness, and crying out, attempting to elevate our nishamas, our souls, towards divine presence, hamokim, hamokom, the place of rachmanas, compassion, we so need to feel cleansed and rebirthed. The irony is that at the very beginning of the Yom Kippur evening service, 
we state the essence of what Yom Kippur is about. It represents the day Moshe returned from the top of the Sinai, once again having encountered God, pushing, prodding, and kaholing God into forgiving the people for the sin of creating the golden calf, abandoning their newly formed relationship because of their own fears and insecurity. God, wanting to reject and destroy them all, is reminded by Moshe that at the very core of the Holy One is a heart of compassion and a desire to forgive. And in a moment of sublime intimacy, God says, I shall make all my goodness pass before you. The fullness of God's love and compassion overflows. God gives Moshe a replacement set of tablets, a second chance is to be had, and calls out Adonai, Adonai compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in kindness and truth, preserver of kindness for thousands of generations, forgiver of inequity, willful sin and error, who cleanses. Even in the midst of taking responsibility for our actions, repeatedly we chant this phrase, a reminder that God loves the brokenhearted, reminded forgiveness is present and we can return. From the very beginning, we repeat the most crucial and benevolent statement. And God said, I have forgiven as you asked. We are embraced and loved even as we own what we've done by the father and mother of us all. Rahamim, compassion, has the same root as the word Rahem, a womb. There is no more compassionate space than that which holds each of one of us for nine months, nourishing and protecting us into life. Yom Kippur is a moment re-entering the divine womb when we can be where we can be rebirthed anew, coming through with expansion and elevation, cleansed, strength, strengthened, and reinvigorated. Love, grace, and compassion is truly the heart of Yom Kippur, and learning to emulate these divine qualities for ourselves and for others is one of the great opportunities we receive each day of atonement. That was Yom Kippur, A Womb of Compassion, by Rabbi and Cantor Eva Robbins, from the My Turn section. Eva Robbins is a rabbi, cantor, artist, and the author of Spiritual Surgery, A Journey of Healing Mind, Body, and Spirit. And from the My Turn section, this is called Obscene Festival of Hate, open letter to University of Pennsylvania President by Arsen Ostrovsky, Professor Liz McGill, President, University of Pennsylvania. Dear President McGill, we write this letter to you on behalf of the International Legal Forum, an NGO and global network of over 4,000 lawyers and activists, including in the United States, committed to combating anti-Semitism and terror and promoting peace in the Middle East. We wish to convey our grave concern at the upcoming Palestine Rights Festival to be held at UPenn on the 22nd and 24th September, featuring speakers who have expressed highly inflammatory, racist, and anti-Semitic views, as well as connections to U.S.-designated terror groups and calls for the destruction of Israel. The fact that this event is also happening during Yom Kippur, the holy stay of the Jewish calendar, is inexcusable and only adds further offense and insult to the Jewish community. While we firmly believe in literature and culture as a form of expression, this event is not a celebration of art, but a festival of unhinged hate, bigotry, and incitement against Jews. It is simply inconceivable that a University of UPenn stature, or any higher academic institution for that matter, would provide a platform for such unvarnished and blatant display of hatred 
which would never be tolerated against any other minority, and nor should it be accepted with respect to Jewish students. Some of the speakers scheduled to participate at the event, for example, include the likes of Roger Waters, who was repeatedly engaged in anti-Semitism, including making such mendacious and racist claims about the Jewish lobby. Mr. Waters is now being investigated by the German police over engaging in Holocaust distortion while wearing a mock SS uniform during his recent series of concerts in the country. The U.S. State Department has even said that Waters has a long track record of using anti-Semitic tropes to denigrate Jewish people. Another speaker, Randa Abdel Fattah, has previously claimed that Israel is a demonic sick project and I can't wait for the day we commemorate its end. Mark Lamont Hill, also speaking at the festival, was fired by CNN after calling for Israel's destruction. He has also said that calls for Palestinians to reject hatred and terrorism was offensive and counterproductive. Meanwhile, with some Rafidi, another speaker at the event, is a convicted member of U.S.-designated terror group Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Susan Abulhawa, the executive director of Palestine Rights, has also previously expressed support for U.S.-designated Palestinian terror groups Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and PFLP, describing their terrorist actions, including those which have resulted in the murder of American citizens, as self-defense by resistance groups, while comparing Israel to Nazis and calling for a boycott of the Jewish state. Is there truly no limit to the kind of unbridled Jew hatred and outright calls for incitement and display for terror that will be directed at Jewish students and community on campus today, all in the purported name of free speech? Whilst we acknowledge the statement released this week by UPenn leadership, including yourself, noting that some of the speakers at the event have a troubling history of engaging in anti-Semitism by speaking and acting in ways that denigrate Jewish people, with all due respect, the university statement and refusal to act in any meaningful manner is woefully insufficient, lies in the face of the university's legal obligations, and quite frankly, is utterly offensive to the Jewish community. The fact that this public event is not organized by the university, as you claim, is besides the point. It is being held on university grounds and is being sponsored in part by the University of Pennsylvania School of Arts and Sciences. There is no affirmative obligation upon the university to agree to hold such an event on your grounds, let alone sponsor it, especially when the university has a record of canceling events in the past following concerns raised by the student community. However, yet again, the concerns of the Jewish students and community are being completely dismissed and ignored. As members of Congress and UPenn alumnus, Representative Josh Gottheimer, Democrat of New Jersey, wrote to you in a recent letter of 10th September 2023. While policy discussions and differing views are a welcome and critical part of building cultural understanding, they cannot provide a bully bullpit for those who seek to divide others. If the university's goal is to promote mutual understanding and bring students together, it will fail so long as anti-Semites and anti-Israel advocates are given a platform to spew hatred. With anti-Semitism in the United States, including at universities already at record highs, events such as the upcoming Palestine Rights Festival only exacerbate the already hostile environment faced by Jewish students fanning the flames of Jew hatred and potentially leading to anti-Semitic harassment and violence on campus. We understand that these concerns 
have also been expressed to you directly by Jewish students at the university and the local Jewish community. We further wish to draw your attention to the fact that as a recipient of federal funds, UPenn is also bound by its obligations under the Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, including prevention of hostile and discriminatory environments for students, such as the one that will inevitably be created as a result of this event. If the organizers of the event wish to conduct this obscene festival of hate, they should not be afforded the privilege of doing so on university grounds and sponsored by the university itself. Doing so would be not only a gross affront to the Jewish students and, com and community on campus, it would also run contrary to UPenn's mission of inclusion, respect, and diversity, and be in breach of your federal legal obligations under the Civil Rights Act. Accordingly, we call on the university to immediately disinvite the extremist, anti-Semitic, and terror-affiliated speakers from ab above from participating at the event. Revoke any official university sponsorship from the festival and rescind the approval to hold the event on campus grounds. We also urge the university to formally adopt the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance working definition of anti-Semitism to guide you in identifying, calling out, and investigating instances of anti-Semitism and harassment of Jewish students on your campus as testaments to your commitment to combating anti-Jewish hatred and discrimination. With anti-Semitism, incitement, and violence against Jewish students on campus already at record highs, there can be zero tolerance for such unchecked hate. We await your urgent response. Yours sincerely, Arsen Ostrovsky, Attorney and CEO, the International Legal Forum. That was Obscene Festival of Hate, open letter to University of Pennsylvania President by Arsen Ostrovsky from the My Turn section. <clears throat> Also from the My Turn section, this is called Extremism and Jewish Thought by Paul Sokin. Isaac Newton's third law of motion states that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, meaning that pushing an object causes the object to push back against you in an equal amount, but in the opposite direction. What is true in science is true in life. One extreme yields another extreme. Dictionaries such as Merriam-Webster associate extremes with radicalism and violence. The Oxford Dictionary, English Dictionary, defines an extremist as a person who opi whose opinions, especially about religion or politics, are extreme and who may do things that are violent, illegal. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche not, uh, not, uh, noted that the extreme positions are not succeeded by moderate ones, but by contrary extreme positions. In other, words, in other words, as in physics, the pendulum never stops in the middle. The novelist Truman Capote expanded on the idea by emphasizing the incompatibility of extremes. The problem of these far right and far left mentalities is that they can encompass only one side of an argument and are congeniously incapable of holding two opinions in their heads at the same time. In a scathing indictment of extremism, Capote mocks the lack of subtlety and nuance of extreme views. What does Jewish tradition teach about extremism? Moses, <clears throat> the model of leadership and closeness to God, is portrayed as the most humble of men. When he is informed that two Israelites were prophesying in the camp, instead of being jealous, he declares that he wishes all Israelites were prophets. 
when Israelite behavior is egregious and God threatens to erase them from the earth and start over with him, Moses argues for mercy and compassion for his people, and they are spared. The medieval Jewish philosopher Maimonides condemned extremes and encouraged moderate behavior. Nothing has pained us and exacerbated the wounds of our nation as much as all the ways of extremism and division have. For the perplexed of the generation, 1319. And Maimonides, he writes, the, the, uh, the rationalist, uh, invoked, the, invoked Jewish history to call attention to the need for unity and cooperation. Jewish males are instructed in the Torah to wear a tzitzit on their garments and on the talis in order to remind them to refrain from extremism in the application of all humans' characteristics. Akidat Yitzchak 77, 1-4 Finally, the Torah mentions the Nazir, a person who feels the need to be zealous in his observance beyond what is required. For example, he vows not to cut his hair and to abstain from wine. He is allowed a circumscribed time, and at the end, he must bring a sin offering. Why limit the time, and why a sin offering? In an effort to discourage extreme behavior, the Torah permits an outlet for such a person, but only for a, a set period, and the sin offering is a sign and a warning, a sign that while there is room for nonconformity and even excess, it is not desired and not the norm, a warning that, that unchecked excess can lead to grave results. If so, in zeal for God, how much more so in the secular realm? So, we see that general culture and Jewish tradition value the middle road, reason and moderate behavior. The consequences of the alternative are known by all. Referring to Karak, the Israelite who challenges Moses' leadership for his own personal gain, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs compares him to the alpha male chimpanzee. Where there is hierarchy, there will be competition as to who will be the alpha male. This primitive behavior, when applied to the human sphere, has had ruinous results. Biblical Israel survived as a united kingdom for only three generations and then split into two. Once split, it became vulnerable and eventually all was lost. The result is what Thomas Hobbes called a perpetual and restless desire of power after power that ceaseth only in death. Rabbi Sachs reminds us that the extreme pre uh, preoccupation with self and personal glory have had the direst consequences, not just for the individual, but also for the whole nation. Observing society in America and Israel today, especially in the political arena, we witness behavior more suited to alpha male chimpanzees than to a civilized society of enlightened men and women. If Jews, for example, after millennia of persecution in other people's lands, cannot understand that the single most important imperative for survival is the absolute necessity to work together, what hope is there for humanity? What does or le goyim, a light unto the nations, mean, if not that? If our societies won't distinguish ourselves from chimpanzees and insist on ignoring history and tradition, then let us at least take note of the law of physics. Extreme attitudes and behavior invariably will cause an equal and opposite reaction, and once again, the world will bear the consequences. That was Extremism in Jewish Thought by Paul Sokin from the My Turn section. Dr. Paul Sokin is Distinguished Professor Emeritus and founder of the Jewish Studies Program at the University of Waterloo. 
We're about to come to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. Here's a quick ad from the same Jewish journal, September 22nd to the 28th, 2023. It's a new year. Get noticed. Advertise in the Jewish journal. Email Marty Finkelstein at martin at jewishjournal.com or call 213-368-1661, extension 242. And we have one more right here. This one is right here. Keep up with what's happening in town. JewishJournal.com slash calendar. And folks, that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. For everything that's happening with us Jews right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.